Hello, this is Alan Fleury. Welcome to this episode of Unscripted. On August 6, 2019, the great American writer Toni Morrison passed away at the age of 88. Her extraordinary achievements in fiction, a Nobel Prize in literature, and multiple best-selling novels exploring black identity in America established a new benchmark not only in American arts and letters, but in literature worldwide. Joining us today on Unscripted is UGA professor of English, Barbara McCaskill. Dr. McCaskill and I spoke by phone the day of Morrison's passing for an article that has now been published by several outlets. Dr. McCaskill, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. In our conversation on August 6th, you previewed the encomia that would begin to roll in in the weeks and months after Morrison's death as we spoke on the very day, articulating some of her profound contributions. Now, a little more than one month removed, how would you say your reflections on Toni Morrison and her work have perhaps evolved, expanded, maybe even changed somewhat to fit the stature of this towering artist? Something that I've come back to again and again, perhaps because this is the beginning of another academic year, and I'm seeing so many bright, sharp students come into my classroom and come into my office. I've reflected again and again about the role that Toni Morrison played as a mentor to other writers and also ways in which she valorized the role of mentorship in African-American communities. And I'm thinking about ways in which so many of her characters serve as surrogate parents and sometimes surrogate children because our history from enslavement to now as we're dealing with issues like mass incarceration has been a history too often of separation, separation of families, dismemberment of families, loss of family members. Obviously, what comes to mind in terms of loss is the separation of families in enslavement due to the auction block and sale. And in order to recover, if I can use that word, because it's really a word that is surrounded by tentativeness in African-American history, in order to recover from the reality of knowing that one might never see a loved one again. I think that as a community, whether we were in Northern slavery or Southern slavery, we learned to create families beyond biology, beyond geography, beyond religion. Our communities became very heterogeneous. And in that way, we became other mothers, other fathers, other siblings, other cousins. I grew up with Southern Black parents, and they used to talk about having kissing cousins. <laughs> and that means, of course, people who are like family, that are so close to you, they have no biological relationship. But it would be a travesty to call them friends because they're more than friends. And what I treasure about Toni Morrison's writing is that she brought those kinds of relationships to life. And she showed how important they are and how those kinds of relationships are not pathological, not dysfunctional, but have contributed to so much of the dynamic culture that's come out of African-American communities and that have helped us be a resilient 
people. Because something else that I've thought about over these few weeks is that she taught us as writers, as scholars, that it's okay to talk about the traumatic, dangerously painful parts of our history. Over and over again, as African-American people, we have experienced deep levels of trauma. And too often, the impulse has been to push that trauma into the deepest recesses of our minds and psyches and to go on. I think maybe culturally as Americans, we're tuned into that, the get over it syndrome. Mm -hmm. Just keep going, right? Right, Keep moving. And of course, we have to. We can't let grief become quicksand to us. But at the same time, what Toni Morrison invited us to do in her writing, in her greatest novels, The Bluest Eye, Song of Solomon, Beloved, was to look at the pain in order to go through it to get to the other side. To recover, to begin to recover, as you you alluded to, you have to reckon with something. Absolutely. And so in order to do that, you need to be presented with it. Yes. And always, always, centrally, Toni Morrison's goal is to speak to Black people, to prioritize African-American audiences. But at the same time, because she's talking about American history, right? The history of enslavement is America's history. The history of convict leasing, the history of chain gangs, the history of Jim Crow and segregation. This is America's history. It's who we are. Right. So what she's doing also is inviting all American readers in particular, although her readership, of course, is global. Mm -hmm. She's inviting American readers in particular, regardless of race or ethnicity, to go through the pain, to face the pain in order to reckon with these sad histories. Because where we are now in this country reminds us once again that as Americans, we've never had a moment of reckoning with the consequences of treating millions of human beings as less than that. And the reverberations of that treatment over the centuries, over families, over generations. And to understand that all of us as Americans are affected by that, no matter when we were born, no matter where we lived, we all are affected by it. And then to ask ourselves, how can we be accountable as individuals, as communities, to this pain? She's not asking us to celebrate pain, of course not, Mm -hmm. but to ask us to be accountable to it, to reckon with it, and to make it visible so that we tell and understand our whole histories as Americans. It's too easy, and it has been too easy, for Americans to slide away from those deepest, most painful hearts, as if, if we can just be peaceful, everything will be okay. But I remember Dr. Martin Luther King saying something to the effect that peace is not the same as justice, right? Peace is not the same as justice. And 
No one likes confrontation. No one likes tension. Right. But the goal of confronting this painful past is to move beyond peace to the attainment of justice. And Toni Morrison's writing is confluent with that idea that right now as Americans, we are grappling with what it means to be a just society for everyone. And we've been doing that since America was created. How do we get there? One step we have to take is to face the painful parts of our history and what that history has done to individuals as well as to groups of people. You talked about, you, um, you said that she called herself a culture worker and that she saw yes. her art as only a form of preservation. Absolutely. Absolutely. We all change as religious groups, as geographical groups, as linguistic groups. Change is inevitable. And Tony was concerned with what African Americans had forgotten about their past, specifically, and generally what Americans had forgotten about African American culture. And to future generations who would not necessarily experience, for example, growing up in an all black neighborhood and going to all black schools. She wanted to capture on paper what that experience was like, having lived that experience herself mm -hmm. growing up in Lorraine, Ohio, which, like many small cities and towns, was segregated to an extent, but not always. I, I recently watched the, uh, the documentary about Toni Morrison, and she explained that in her uh, hometown, she and her family members could walk in the front door of white-owned stores, and they would be served by white business owners. They lived in a very multi-ethnic community above the Mason-Dixon line. Right. So they experienced segregation sometimes, <laughs> and yeah. they experienced integration sometimes. But many of their experiences, current generations of African Americans, current generations of Americans, are not going to undertake anymore. She wanted to capture those experiences on paper. And particularly, she wanted to capture African-American language as she heard it spoken by her parents, mm -hmm. by her grandparents, by the elders in her community, the folk sayings, the curses, yeah. <laughs> the blessings, <laughs> uh, the dream lore, the games. <laughs> she wanted to capture these rich traditions that not all Americans experience and not all African Americans will experience. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills, from languages and literature to biological sciences, build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to be informed, engaged citizens. For more on Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. So that's what I meant by her seeing herself as a culture worker, keeping those traditions alive. 
I know I've read some of her novels and had aha moments that have reminded me of people in my family, older people in my family. And I think that that is what she was moving toward, that kind of effectiveness to help us as readers understand that we are part of a continuum as people, Mm -hmm. that we are linked, intertwined to those who have gone on before us. She wanted to bring their voices back into life. And, you know, that linkage is really important for the next generation of artists. Yes. You, we need giants. Yes. We need people to aspire to. Sure, mm-hmm. we need their light to lead us as a society, as a country, as a population. Mm-hmm. But those few among us who have that kind of aspiration yes. need people like her very badly. Yes. I think some of the finest writers coming out of African-American communities today are very aware of these past literary voices. And they're talking back to those voices, Mm. even as they are imagining new ways to write about the world around them. They are keeping the tradition alive. And that is such an important goal of African-American artists, no matter what discipline, because for so long, our voices have been muzzled mm-hmm. and our art has been tamped down. So there's a degree of urgency to this project. We write, of course, to and for ourselves. I'm a writer. If I put pen to paper and expect anything to come out of it, I can't worry about who's going to read what I say. <laughs> no, 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 you can't. I think that's the first rule of thumb in writing. You everyone have to forget. Has, everyone has to leave yes. the room. Unfortunately, yes. if, it's go- if it's going well, you leave the room. Yes. You have to forget the audience. Otherwise, you'll censor yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to be clear that contemporary African-American artists, earlier African-American artists wrote as artists do, and painted and danced, first and foremost for themselves. Mm -hmm. But the masters among them, the giants among them, as you say, are aware of the voices, the dancers, the artists that have gone before. And they want to make visible those influences. Mm -hmm. And that's what Morrison was doing in her language, in her imagery, her awareness of the natural world in her love song to the American South, Mm. in uh, a book like Beloved, she's very aware of those who have gone before. She was an editor and a teacher. Yes. Um, And you actually had some interaction with her on at least one of those levels. Right. Really minimal. I have to say that I had the misfortune of coming into a university at the moment that she was packing up to leave. (laughs) She had been a distinguished professor at the State University of New York at Albany in the creative writing program. And I met her my first full year in the English department. And as I recall, and memory plays tricks on you, I don't know if this this is true or not, but I remember that my office was down the hall. (laughs) Maybe I want to remember it that way. I hope it was true. But I was in close proximity to Professor Morrison, although I have to say she was gone more frequently than she was in residence. And that's the nature of, of, of the game for an artist as distinguished as she. 
But I did muster up finally courage to go and find her. (laughs) I realized she wasn't going to come to me. So I went down one day and I knocked on her door. I I didn't, uh, this was for those of my students who are listening, this was before email. (laughs) We couldn't just email each other. Email was very, in its very nascent stages. So you either had to have somebody's phone number or find them. So I went down the hall and I found her and she happened to be in. And when I came in, I imagined that her office was cavernous and she was in a far corner with a huge picture window behind her and her desk was facing the window and she was facing the window in her chair and she swiveled around and I expected her to say, get out (laughs) or something else that reminded me that I was a lowly assistant professor. But instead, she was very welcoming. I managed to stammer out who I was. And I started saying something about how I loved reading her literature and that I taught her works and I just wanted to shake her hand, blah, blah. And we ended up sitting there for about 20 minutes talking about African-American literature. And I was, it was an unimaginable moment for me. Because I was at that stage where I had just completed writing my dissertation and was very worried still about whether or not I was in the right discipline (laughs) and whether or not I was cut out to do what I aspired to do. But sitting there and talking to her as easily as I'm talking to you or I would talk to my students or friends reminded me that this was home. And I like that about her writing, that she creates a sense of home, no matter what she's talking about, no matter what period of time her works focus on. And as we know, she covered the span Mm -hmm. of history from slavery through the Jazz Age, through the Korean War. I'm thinking of her, uh, uh, one of her more recent novels, which actually was titled Home. Mm. I think that that is a cohesive thread in all of her novels. I'm sitting here with a copy of Beloved and the plantation is called Sweet Home. And I came away with that sense that I'd been at home. It meant a lot for me to sit and talk to her because I was far from my home. My, My family lived in the deep south. Here I was in upstate New York. I'd lived in the Northeast before, but upstate New York is its own place. And uh, I knew that I was a stranger in a strange land. Mm -hmm. And in those 20 minutes, even as she was on her way to the next big step in her career, she made me feel at home. And she made me feel that I had something to say to an audience. I had something to say to my students. And I had something to say as a writer, that I remember that moment when I left and there she was sitting in her chair and the sun was shining. It was a rare day in upstate New York when the sun was actually shining and she just seemed to be glowing all over. And I just kept that in my head in these last few weeks when I was reflecting on her passing and what that means to those of us that remain here, continuing to do the work of making visible 
African-American writing, developing an appreciation for African-American writing among our students, among our colleagues, and demonstrating to the world the role that African-American writers have played in American culture, which is a phenomenal and gigantic role. And to be both writer and editor, to actually create the works and then inspire other writers to do that, nurture them through the business side Mm -hmm. of publishing. And there is a business side of publishing, even as she herself was learning that business side with very few people to teach her is an extraordinary legacy for those of us who are still here and reminds us that as much as we do, there's always more that we can do. <laughs> well, it's, it's very true. And, you know, even with the, the, the heights of her literary pursuits, she touched other aspects of our culture. Um, the uh, Beloved was, was made into a film in 1998, directed yes. by Jonathan Demme, starring Oprah yes. Winfrey. Did she like that kind of translation across media? I don't know the answer to that question, but what I can, I'm so glad that you turned to Beloved because I brought a phrase uh, from Beloved that demonstrates how powerfully her writings have saturated popular culture. In other words, gone beyond the pages of her book. And this isn't an example from the film. It's an example from the uh, lynching Memorial and Legacy Museum in Montgomery. This weekend, I went on a bus trip with uh, residents of Athens for the first time to this memorial. Wow. And for those listeners who haven't been, I don't want to give it all away. What I will say is that throughout the memorial, there's an outdoor memorial and an indoor museum. And throughout the outdoor memorial, there are plaques with words of African-American leaders, Dr. King, for example, African-American writers, and not surprisingly, Toni Morrison. (laughs) (laughs) And as as I recall, her uh, quotation is on one of the last plaques that you see. She gets nearly the last word. Yes, I think, as I recall. And so I just want to read that quotation. It came from Beloved. Please. And... For those who've read Beloved, you may recall that this is an excerpt from a sermon given by Baby Suggs Holy. And that's what the community calls her, Baby Suggs Holy, not Reverend Baby Suggs or Minister Baby Suggs. She's a holy person. She's a woman of God. She's a preacher and a healer. But as Morrison writes in the novel, she is not anointed by any church. Uh, She hasn't been appointed or given a title. She has defined herself to be a preacher and a healer. And that is exactly what she does as a role in the whole community. And I think she serves as a metaphor in this book for dreaming yourself into being, inventing yourself into being, and being who you want to be, regardless of what the community might want you to be and what role the community might want you to have. Because significantly, Baby Suggs is a minister at a moment in 
our history as Americans, when people looked askance at the idea of women mm -hmm. interpreting <laughs> biblical words. Well, it's not a convention. It's not yeah. a convention. And she's not a well-educated person either. And that also, I think, comes into play. Anyway, these are her words. And these are the words that are inscribed on one of the plaques in the lynching memorial. And oh, my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck unnoosed and straight. So love your neck. Put a hand on it. Brace it, stroke it, and hold it up. And all your inside parts that they just as soon slop for hogs, you got to love them. The dark, dark liver. Love it. Love it. And the beat and beating heart. Love that too. More than eyes or feet. More than lungs that have yet to draw free air. More than your life-holding womb and your life-giving private parts. Hear me now. Love your heart. For this is the prize. Wow. Wow. It's quite as if she is an ambassador to us of our own country. Yes, absolutely. I just like the idea of seeing her words, her imagination writ large in a memorial that once again makes visible a part of history, the lynching mob violence against 4,000 known mm, no. African-Americans, some of whose names we don't know, right. right? Right. But making visible this history, claiming it, owning it as part of our history so that we can move through it, not over it, not under it, not around it, but through it to the next level. She's telling us we need to reckon exactly. with it. Exactly. She's telling us we need to reckon with it. And I so appreciated seeing also the idea of an artist in this site, which invites us to think about justice, invites us to think about equity, also demonstrates how hyper-aware Toni Morrison was of the role historically that African-American literature has played in moving our conversation about race and racial politics forward. There's been an intertwining in African-American literature. Not all African-American literature is political. Sure. But much of it is. Right. That is part of the legacy of African-American literature. Mm. And so to see those words of an artist, a literary person, in this place, a place that focuses on a history that seems unimaginable for civilized people, I think was very powerful to me. And reminding us that all leaders are not politicians. Yes. You know, we can look farther afield, and in fact, we need to, and yes. they're probably all around us. Right. And we need new languages. We need new names. Mm. Uh, I think Morrison, like the best of all writers, knows how to create a new language to talk about older topics. She revitalizes these topics by giving them a new language, by inserting new voices into old topics. And that makes us want to take them up again. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm confident that people will continue to discover her, her gifts, and the joy of discovering those gifts. Yes, I know they will. <laughs> 
Barbara McCaskill, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful opportunity to speak with you again. A great luxury to have you elucidate further on the legacy of this towering artist, Toni Morrison. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Go out and read her works, people. You will not be disappointed.